Hello everybody, this is our eighth sermon looking at the book of Revelation. Our passage today begins at verse 1 of chapter 17 and takes us through to verse 10 of chapter 19. And the hope unveiled this time is that a wedding awaits. Everybody loves a wedding. There are occasions of such love and joy. If we've been invited to one, we save the date months in advance and busily begin to prepare. We plan where we're going to stay, what we're going to wear and the gift we will take to the couple. Weddings are such beacons of hope to us. The anticipation of one can keep us going through many a difficult day in the run-up. Yet the preparation of a guest is nothing compared to that of the couple themselves. Until I got married, I had no idea how many things needed to be thought about. Fortunately, I was marrying a woman who'd spent half her life dreaming about her big day. Cars, guests, rings and dress, invitations, table plans and banquet menus, flowers, cake and photographs, the list seems endless. I spend most of my time when counselling an engaged couple, encouraging them to keep it simple. It's so easy amongst all the expectations of modern society to forget what a wedding is all about. Of course, in that light, the most important preparation future spouses have to make is faithfulness. The run-up to the big day is not the time to try out someone else before it's too late. Amongst the debauchery of hen parties and stag weekends, it's vital that temptation is avoided. Otherwise, the marriage is in trouble before it even starts. We've seen enough films and read enough books of couples who do not even make it to their wedding day. Maybe we even know of it from personal experience. Weddings are wonderful, but for them to be enjoyed to the full, faithfulness is key. Our passage today climaxes with a glorious wedding feast. It is a picture to hold on to through the difficult days of this virus. It brings hope to us in all our troubles. But to fully understand it, we need to know a little of the context. The letter of Revelation is now drawing to a close. It has described the course of history from Christ's ascension to his second coming from several different angles. We now know the story. There will be periods of great difficulty, but if we hold on to Christ, glory awaits. We can be so sure of that, we're freed up to use our time and energy to share the gospel with as many as possible on the way. Revelation ends with three final scenes. Each one takes a major theme from the letter, summarises it and brings it to its conclusion. Our passage today is the first of these scenes, and it's all to do with temptation. Right from the beginning of the book and the letters to the seven churches, we have found that temptation is something that Christians have to fight against. Be it false teaching, idolatry, money, sex or power, these are the devil's schemes of seduction. They come as opposition to God's people in an attempt to make us compromise our faith. They may seem harmless at first, but when given into, they always lead to disaster. We must resist them. 
That resistance may itself lead us into difficulty. It may lead us to suffering persecution for our faith. But if in the Spirit's strength we do resist, this passage promises us future delight, a wedding day with God. Let's see how the passage communicates this truth. The next thing that John sees in his great vision is a beautiful woman. She's dressed in rich purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and pearls. She's stunningly attractive. Even John is astonished by her. But there is something sinister behind the intoxicating appeal. This woman is the great prostitute. As always with Revelation, to fully understand this image, you need to know the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, one of the most common images used for the relationship between God and his people is that of marriage. In Hebrew thought, the wedding took place at Mount Sinai when God made his covenant with Israel. The giving of the law was like the exchanging of vows. From that moment on, God was Israel's husband. This image explains why when you then start reading through the prophets, every time Israel fell into idolatry and worshipped other gods, it's likened to adultery. The clearest examples of this are Ezekiel chapters 16 and 23. These are X-rated passages full of sexual immorality and prostitution that you would never read with children present. But what they're really pointing to is Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Eventually in the Old Testament, Israel's behaviour was so bad, divorce was the only option left for God. This was how Jeremiah and others described the exile. It was a terribly sad state of affairs. But fortunately for Israel, by his grace, God made a promise that he would take them back if they returned to him. He used the prophet Hosea's love for an adulterous wife as an example of his utter faithfulness to his beloved people. Hopefully this background helps us to understand this passage a little better. A prostitute is the symbol of all that lures men and women away from marital faithfulness and from celibacy in their single life before marriage. A prostitute is glittery and seductive, flouting and depraved. A prostitute offers materialism without morality, pleasure without purity, wealth without wisdom. In this passage, she holds out a gold cup, promising the finest of wine to those who choose to drink. But the content of the cup is not wine, it is abomination. Filth that pollutes and poisons the insides of all those who choose to partake. Revelation is brutally honest. Lust for a beautiful prostitute is hard to resist. In verse 2 of chapter 17, we read of both kings and city inhabitants alike being drawn to their ruin. In the Bible, sexuality and drunkenness are images of dependence. Once you've tasted their wares, they become utterly addictive. Like a drug user, you will soon do anything to maintain your fix, even turning your eyes away from bloodshed in society and the murder of the innocent. 
The Old Testament tells us that all of this distressing imagery is really regarding the temptations that draw people away from right relationship with God. The next thing we learn about this prostitute is her name. She is called Babylon the Great. Again, we need to turn to the Hebrew scriptures to understand this. In the Old Testament, Babylon was the centre of opposition to God and his purposes. In Genesis 11, human beings tried to build a tower to reach heaven. They wanted to be in control and not spread out across the world as God had asked them to. It was the height of rebellion. The location of that tower was Babel, the same word used for Babylon in Hebrew. In 2 Kings 17, Israel were taken into exile by Assyria. The Assyrians then planted people from Babylon into the empty land. When the Israelites returned, these Babylonians then led them into idolatrous rituals and worship of their own gods. In 2 Kings 24, it was Babylon's turn to be the world's superpower. They attacked Judah, defeated Jerusalem and took the people away. In the book of Daniel, we get a glimpse of what that exile was like. It was a constant battle with temptation. Daniel's three friends were called to worship a golden image. When they refused, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Indeed, the title Babylon the Great comes from Daniel 4.30, when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was boasting about his kingdom. So Babylon in the Bible is a place that has constantly opposed God, whose people have introduced false worship, taken God's people into exile and committed heinous acts against them, has oppressed many nations, and above all, has acted in arrogant and boastful defiance towards God. We get the message. A prostitute called Babylon is a symbol of all that opposes God and the loving relationship he wants to have with his people. It's a symbol of all the political, social, cultural, commercial and religious forces that seek to lure God's people away from the faithful living. All means are used with the aim of temptation. The question that now begs to be asked is, who is Babylon the Great? To whom does all this imagery refer? Well, John bends over backwards to give us a clear answer to this. In verses 7 to 18, we discover that it is Rome. Remember the context of the letter. The Christians of the first century were being heavily persecuted by the Roman Emperor. The emperor had declared himself a god and was forcing all people to worship him. If the church refused, they were persecuted harshly. They could face imprisonment, torture and death. They had extra taxes thrown at them and were refused entry to the markets. All of this led to Christians being disowned by their own families and betrayed to the authorities by their friends. In this context... The temptation to bow the knee to Rome, to idolise the emperor, was huge. And sadly, some Christians were starting to give in to it. This is what the whole letter has been about. 
the situation that it's been trying to help by providing the believers with a future hope to hold on to. How do we know that Babylon the prostitute is a symbol of Rome? Well, let's look at some of the imagery. In Roman art, the goddess Roma was depicted as a woman sat on a horse or other animal. In this passage, Babylon rides a scarlet beast. That beast has seven heads. Rome was built on seven hills. That beast has ten horns, a symbol of great strength. The Roman Empire ruled the entire known world with brutal violence. We're told of seven kings and then an eighth king who was actually one of the seven. This baffling sentence makes no sense until you know about Nero. Nero committed suicide in AD 68, but many in the empire refused to believe that he had died, and many were convinced he would come back again to lead Rome's army into further victory. So the prostitute Babylon sits atop all the power and authority of the Roman Empire. She uses all of the forces of immorality and idolatry and persecution to tempt God's people away from him. This is evil at work. Notice the refrain that comes twice in this vision describing the beast that once was, now is not, and yet will come. It's a clear parody of what was said about Jesus right at the start of the letter. In verse 8 of chapter 1, Jesus was described as the one who is and who was and who is to come. Rome has done nothing short of setting itself up in the place of God. This is an act that God just will not be able to tolerate. As I said earlier, these final scenes in Revelation are all about drawing the main themes together and bringing them to their conclusion. So far, we've been reminded of the power of the temptation that believers of the first century faced and the urgent call to them to resist at all costs. But how this all ends is with the promise that one day Rome will fall. This is part of the hope the first century Christians were to hold on to. In verse 14 of chapter 17, we read that Babylon and the beast make war against Jesus and his followers. But because Jesus is the Lord of lords and King of kings, they will fail. Christ and his people will overcome. From earlier in the letter, we know that the ultimate victory over evil has already been won. Not through violence, but through the lamb sacrificially laying down his life on the cross and taking it up again at the resurrection. But how does that relate to Rome? How will Rome fall? Well, in verse 16, we read of a strange internal civil war. The beast turns upon the prostitute that rides it and brings her to her ruin. It then eats her flesh and burns her remains. It's a ghastly image of destruction. Again, if you know the Old Testament, there are similarities here. In 2 Chronicles 20, God's people were surrounded by a powerful enemy. A terrible defeat was imminent. But God led the opposing army to turn on each other and kill themselves. Israel's army did not have to lift a finger in violence to claim the victory. Also in 2 Kings 9, evil Queen Jezebel, who led Israel into the false worship of Baal, was killed and devoured by dogs. 
But alongside these Old Testament precedents, what is astonishing about this vision is just how accurate it proved to be. Rome eventually fell in the 5th century after being attacked by barbarian tribes. But historians tell us that what really caused the collapse was the empire becoming a victim of its own brutality. Rome had economic troubles from fighting too many wars. The gap between rich and poor grew too large, so they lost the loyalty of the people. They ran out of people to use as slaves, just one of the signs of their overexpansion. There was rampant corruption and political instability, with 20 emperors in 75 years at one stage as they kept on assassinating each other. Every word of this vision was true. The beast of empire devoured the prostitute. Rome was destroyed by its own arrogant, violent and immoral values. God defeated them by handing them over to themselves, by allowing them to experience the consequences of their own evil actions. The church never had to fight a violent war against Rome. They just had to remain faithful to Christ. Having now detailed the fate of Rome, Revelation 18 forms the funeral dirge for the death of Babylon the prostitute. The whole chapter is written in a prophetic past tense. In other words, these events are so certain to happen, the angel sings about them as if they already have. This chapter is incredibly political, one of the most political in the whole Bible. Who is it that we find lamenting here? Kings who had sold out for money, sex and power. Merchants who ran the illegitimate economy, making the rich richer and the poor poorer. Brokers who dealt in the purple and gold that clothed the prostitute, an image of the luxury trade that supports evil systems of exploitation. In verse 13, we read of the slavery of human beings to meet their own ends. All these people lament the fall of Rome, the ones addicted to wickedness and evil and who have profited from it. But what does chapter 18 have to say to us on Isla today? Well, there are two clear messages. First, we must notice that all the poetry used in this chapter is taken from the Old Testament. But those Old Testament quotes do not all come from passages related to Babylon. Some are about Tyre, others are about Edom. In other words, although Revelation is specifically focused on Rome, it does not apply to Rome alone. In the first century, Rome was just the latest version of the Old Testament archetype of humanity and rebellion against God. Again and again, throughout history, human beings have come together and used economic and military power to work against the Lord, his people and his purposes. More recently, we saw it in the slave trade, partly run by the British Empire. We saw it in Nazi Germany. We saw it in the apartheid regime of South Africa. We see it in the aggressive secularism of the West today. We see it wherever the church is persecuted in the world. God's people suffer at the hands of the godless. They're pressed to bow to sectarian regimes. God is announced to be dead. Revelation tells us that in all these situations, Christians must remain faithful to Christ. Because ultimately these empires will fall. 
God will not tolerate these abusive powers. He will hand them over to their own destruction. So we must always be on our guard. This is happening in our world today and not far from home. Second, we must hear the very clear call of this chapter to the church. It comes in verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Wherever we see oppressive systems, we must come out of them. We must name them for what they are and not share in their sins. God will defeat the tyrants and empires of the world, and by us coming out of them, we heap coals on their heads. This is not a call to violence. Remember the Lamb won by loving sacrifice. It is a call to resist temptation. By not bowing to the system, God's people utterly condemn it. History tells us that Christianity was a big part of why the Roman Empire fell. As Christianity expanded, it challenged the use of violence. It eroded the glorification of the state and the giving of the emperor divine status to do whatever he liked. The church called into question what the powers were up to, and the people took notice. What could this mean for us today? It could mean joining the campaign Black Lives Matter. It could mean championing equal pay for women. It could mean refusing to buy from unethical companies such as clothes outlets that use sweatshops in the subcontinent. It could mean using your vote at the next election, not just to serve your own ends, but to boost the vulnerable. It could mean thinking clearly about your pension investments. Are any of them in arms companies or the smoking industry? It could mean fighting for animal welfare and environmental concern. We must not be seduced by the economic, political and societal powers of the day. We are to come out of the constant drive for money, sex and power and live a life that displays the values of Jesus. Humble sacrifice and serving love. Ultimately, if our nation ever reaches the point where it calls us to compromise our faith, we must resist that with everything we've got. This all sounds very political and that makes us uncomfortable. But you try telling believers in the first century and this, who are suffering at the hands of the powerful, that the kingdom of God does not have political implications. Now that Babylon, the great prostitute, has met her demise, now that the fall of all anti-Christian forces has been promised, we can truly start to celebrate. The first 10 verses of chapter 19 are an eruption of praise, a fourfold hallelujah from the heavens. After all the days of struggle, the wedding has finally arrived. After all the preparation, the banquet table is set. And all those who have kept themselves pure, all those who have resisted temptation and remain faithful, even all of those who first fell but later came out of their sins, are invited. But they're not just invited as guests. In a moment of great surprise, John sees all God's people come together and form the bride herself. 
They are dressed in white linen, as opposed to the purple and scarlet of the prostitute, as a sign of their righteousness. It is a beautiful, beautiful picture of what will happen when Christ returns to earth. An intimate relationship of love will be renewed and never, ever end. Those who resist the temptations of life will know intimacy with God, joy, delight, blessing forevermore. The struggle to stay faithful up until this great wedding day will be proved to have been more than worth it. This news is so good, John himself gets carried away. He's tempted to fall down and start worshipping the angel who's given him the vision. Whoops. Steady on, John. This is what the whole passage has been about. We're not to worship anybody but Jesus alone. It's a moment of great humour amongst the seriousness of all that we have thought of. In this crisis, we may be tempted to give up on our faith. In the affluence of Western society, we may be tempted to idolise money and material things in place of Christ. We must ensure that Jesus remains our first love, because one day we'll be married to him. The hope unveiled in this section of Revelation is that a wedding awaits us. The Lord will be our marriage partner and he loves us right now for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health until that day comes.